0: Alright, well we're in Daniel chapter 11 today, so let's go ahead and turn there, and I'd like to take a minute to preface the sermon before we begin. Daniel chapter 11 is one of the most complicated chapters within the book. Because of the extensive details that are found in Daniel 11, there is no way that we could do it justification uh, on a uh, Sunday morning. And so a portion of it we will be summarizing, which we will uh, allow us to concentrate on the, what I believe the focal points of the chapter actually is. But to help you, because we don't want to leave you clueless to that section, I have prepared a handout that for those of you who are overachievers or like to do extra credit can see me afterwards, and I'll be glad to give you one. It's five pages, and this is still a summary in and of itself. So uh, I've prayed about it, and I looked at the chapter. I've taught chapter 11 many, many times. and the, Yeah, I agree. Um, that's the way I usually feel after looking at it myself. Um, after looking at it, I felt that this would be the best way to help you uh, learn the chapter and so forth. It's something you can take home. We can email it to you and we will put this on our website so when you make your way to the message, the audio copy of the message on our website, there's an option to download the message itself and also uh, download this handout so, and it'll download in PDF form for you. So just, an, uh, just a little preface before we get started. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll get into Daniel chapter 11. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. Father, as we look at this 11th chapter together, there is purpose to the reasoning why you gave this revelation to Daniel. The majority of it has already taken place. It's found in ancient history. Uh, People that were prominent at one time who are forgotten today, Lord, played a, a large role in your plan and purposes. But Lord, we pray that you take us through this chapter and help us to know and to understand what you were really trying to communicate to Daniel. And so we pray that by your spirit, you will lead us and guide us through every word on the scripture. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have to tell you that growing up in high school, history was not one of my favorite subjects. I was so thankful that I had it after lunch because I could be guaranteed of a 45 minute nap after lunch. I didn't appreciate history. Didn't care for it. I like all teenagers concluded that well I'll have no practical reason for learning history and when am I ever going to use it, you know. And then I got saved. And by 18, I had read, I got saved at 16, and by 18, I had read through the entire Bible. And I heard a pastor once say that the study of history is vitally important to our understanding of God's word for two reasons. Number one, that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And number two, history is truly his story. And then I start, after time went on, I began to appreciate history all that much more. To the point now where my daughter gets frustrated with me because I love to look at the documentaries that are on television concerning history. She's like, Dad, why? We could be watching Lost, you know. Why are we looking at this, you know? So now I have to wait until Dina and Autumn are gone and watch my history stuff and so forth. We're living in a moment that history will remember, aren't we? People will look back at the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. And history will judge us. In fact, many have used that phrase as a manipulation. You want to be on the right side of history. You know, the more people I hear using that, I find to be on the wrong side of history. History is very important. And as we will discover... Daniel now is in his late 80s. In chapters 10, 11, and 12, the last vision from God is given to him. It's extensive. It takes him from the point in time in which he currently finds himself all the way through till the very end, the moments just before the return of Jesus Christ. And the world then is found to be governed by Jesus himself in the millennial kingdom revelation chapter 20 and then after that thousand year period of time the new heavens and the new earth are instilled a place where death and sin have never uh, tainted it or infected it in any way shape or form at the end of Daniel's life he's asking the question what is the future of my nation Israel what will happen next after suffering the 70 years of captivity, some already returning to the land in which God promised them, but only a small number, 50,000 out of the possible million and a half to two million Jews that were in the Babylonian Empire, currently the Medes and the Persian Empire-controlled area of the world. In chapter 10, we find that the vision begins... And Daniel then is once again accompanied by the angel Gabriel. As we come to chapter 11, we find that the angel describes for Daniel in very detailed fashion what's going to transpire next. Starting off with the kings of the Medes and the Persians, then moving to what will happen under the reign of Greece. And making their way all the way to the rise of one, who we know to be Anarchus Fourth, Epiphanes. He thought very highly of himself, for the word epiphany means manifested one, glorious one. And with the arrival of Anarchus Epiphanes, they realize that a certain moment has been, uh, a certain moment in time has arrived for them to notice. Now, why is this significant for us since it's happened in the past? Well, because Jesus, after that fact, said that there is another occasion coming that will be in perfect parallel with the arrival of Anarchus Epiphanes. Meaning that what Anarchus Epiphanes did, there's another one coming in the future who will parallel those events, that individual we know to be the Antichrist. The book of Daniel is one of the most fascinating books of all the Bible. Daniel chapter 11 has caused more to criticize the authenticity of the book of Daniel than any other chapter within it. Because of the detail of the prophecy given, many have speculated, those who want to deny the inherency of Scripture or the fact that Scripture has been given by inspiration of God, believe that the prophecy was so detailed that it had to be what was called pseudo-prophetic. Or pseudo-prophecy, meaning that it was prophecy that is given after the fact. Written as prophecy, but after the actual events had taken place. And this argument went on for millennia, centuries, and even to this present day. There are many who believe that the detailed uh, events of Daniel chapter 11 are too specific. They could have never been written beforehand. Those who take that position do not have an issue with prophecy. What they have an issue with is the ability of God. What is God capable of doing? Well, let let me simplify that question for you by saying, what is God incapable of doing? The prophecy of chapter 11, of course, was given by inspiration to Daniel for the purpose of knowing what is to come next. For God, that is nothing for him to do. Prophecy becomes one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the inspired word of God, separating it again from any other religious literature found anywhere in the world. God telling us beforehand what will occur. He's able to do so because he sees the beginning from the end. In Isaiah 46.10, which should be on the screen behind me, God says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God sees the existence of our creation, the world, all at one time, past, current, and future. To help illustrate that, if I were to take you downtown, and if we were watching, let's say, our Thanksgiving Day Parade, which seems to be so lame compared to the one in New York. All right, hold on. I know we're talking about Daniel. But we can't get a good New Year's Eve special here in Chicago if our life dependent on it, okay? I mean, Dick Clark's been dead for how long? And New York is still better. They're putting on reruns, and those are better. We're going into 1985, and those are still better than the ones we have in Chicago. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest. Let's say we're watching a parade. And let's say we're standing on the street watching the parade. We would see the portion of the parade that is currently in front of us, wouldn't we? Whatever is happening right there before us, you know, the SpongeBob SquarePants balloon or whatever it is. We couldn't see the what's coming next because it's still too far away or it's around the corner. And we most likely have forgotten what has already passed us because we're waiting in anticipation for that which is still yet to come. But see, God has a very different vantage point when it comes to his view of creation. Because that's very similar to ours, isn't it? We see day by day. We remember the past, but unfortunately our memories fade. We don't know what the future holds for us. And yet we see the world through the lens of the particular day in which we occupy and feel that we know everything that's going to occur. But see, God is different. For God's perspective, is if as he was on top of the Sears Tower in Chicago, looking down at the parade, he could see the beginning of the parade, the middle of the parade, and the end of the parade, all at the exact same time. And therefore, to, for him to tell his servants, his prophets, what's going to happen next is not difficult for him to do. Now, I realize that I'm greatly simplifying the characters of God, his omniscience omnipresence, omnipotence. But that helps us to understand that he can see the beginning from the end. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy before we begin. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me, Starting in verse 15, Moses predicts the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but in it he also qualifies the revelation that prophets give and how we may know if they are true or not. Notice with me here in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15, Moses writing, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, Him you shall hear, according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Hebron, or Horon. In the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And when the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is referring to Jesus. And it shall be that whoever will not, speak, will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of another other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen, or come to pass, that the thing which the Lord has not spoken... The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. The criteria for true prophecy is its fulfillment. God isn't 50% correct. He's not 80% correct. He's not 90% correct in his prophetic uh, uh, speakings. He's 100% correct, as we will find in Daniel chapter 11. For Daniel, in Daniel 2.22, remember he was given this promise, that he, that is God, reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Meaning God is going to bring out those things. God is going to reveal to his people those things of what is still yet to come. Well, let us now begin in Daniel chapter 11. I hope you've had your coffee, that you're well awake. Here we go. You can tell I'm looking forward to this. I am, though, but not everybody's as geeky as me in these things. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now this is still Gabriel speaking. This is one of the areas of Scripture where chapter division uh, kind of interrupts the line of thought. And as Gabriel is still speaking to Daniel, we continue into chapter 11, and he reminds now Daniel that even when Darius the Mede, the first of the uh, kings of the Persian media Persian empire, came to power, that Gabriel was with him. In verse 2, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Notice that here it's he again, the angel says, now this is truth. When you go to the book of Revelation, you will find often Jesus reminding John that this is truth in which he is being revealed to him. The word truth there is a very interesting word. It is absolutely indicative of an absolute truth, meaning it's absolutely going to happen. Some scholars argue that from God's perspective, prophecy has already happened since he sees the beginning from the end. He sees it all at one time. So this way he can say with certainty, that this is truth, this is going to happen. As our world continues to erode the foundation of what I know to be absolute truths, sharing with people that everything is relative and weighed within the person's personal experience in life, able to provide for that person what they perceive to be truth, and that way they're only accountable to what they believe to be true. Say that 10 times fast. The problem with that is, is that God says that this is truth. Meaning it's not solely limited to one's personal experience that truth is derived. But more importantly, that there's a truth that governs everything. And that truth is God himself. Jesus said it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There are absolute truths. Our reality is not simply limited to our own personal perspective, experience in life, or personal opinion. There's a governing truth that governs all of humanity, and it is found in the Word of God. It's found in God Himself. This is truth, Gabriel says. For there shall be three that will rise up after Him, And then there will be a fourth. The fourth is Xerxes, who we find in the book of Esther, chapter 1 and 2. And when we look at those chapters in Esther, we find that he did turn against the Greeks, and he, uh, he regretted it immediately. For one had risen in Greece, who was a great man named Alexander the Great. And the Grecian Empire stormed, took the world, the known world, as a f- brush fire. In a very short period of time, Alexander the Great conquered the majority of the known world. Now, of course, this is written all before the fact. Verse 3 Then a mighty king shall arise. Now, this is a mighty king out of Greece who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven. When Alexander the Great died, he died of pneumonia. He was out in the elements. He went to bed soaking wet and he caught pneumonia and died at a very young age. A young age that did not allow for him to have successors, sons, to follow him. So when he died abruptly, the Grecian Empire was divided to the four generals that were currently in charge. And notice with me that the prophecy tells us that before it actually had occurred. And when he had arisen, his kingdom shall be taken, uh, broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not according to his uh, posterity, meaning it will not succeed to one in his family lineage, it will go to others, nor according to his dominion, meaning it will never be the same under these four that it once was, with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even uh, four others besides these meaning that when it does succeed to these four generals a period of time will pass where it'll seem like they are in control but it'll it'll start to disintegrate very quickly their control because one rising in the distance is the Roman Empire which we'll actually see here in a moment now we come to verse 5. Now verse 5 concentrates the conflicts between two of the generals out of the four that just have been appointed over the Grecian Empire. The first of those gener- generals is Seleucus. Don't ask me to say that again. And he reigned from the northern territory, which we now know to be Syria. And then there was Ptolemy, who was in the southern region in an area that we now know to be Egypt. And the reason that Gabriel appears to focus on these two generals out of the four is due to the fact that if you look at a map and you look at Syria to the north, Egypt to the south, there's a little nation in between the two that must be traveled through to get from one place to the other, and that nation is Israel. So Gabriel is saying to Daniel, listen, here's what's going to happen. And in this conflict between these two generals, and there's a list from chapter uh, verse 5 to verse 20 of the various individuals that succeeded, both Seclusius in the uh, north and also Ptolemy in the south. At times they try to come together and join uh, an allegiance or an alliance together by the king of the north providing his daughter to the king of the south in hopes that that will bridge the gap. But nothing ever lasted. There was constant tension between them all. Now the reason again for these descriptive uh, prophecies is to show Daniel, for Daniel to record for us what is still yet to come. But some have argued that Daniel, is, Daniel 11 is actually misplaced in your Bible, that it would be more appropriately placed, if I may, if you pick up your Bible, and if you go to the section that is known as the 400 years of silence, it is between Malachi and Matthew. And many say, well, we just don't know what happened in the world during the, that period of time, that 400 year period of time. Yes, we do. It's Daniel chapter 11, verses 5 through 20. Give us a very descriptive idea of what happened between the Old and the New Testament. So if you want to right now tear out Daniel 11 and put it in there, I completely understand. And then back away to see if lightning from heaven will come down and strike you. Those aren't jokes, by the way. I notice we have some new people here. Okay, I'm a funny guy, really. But again, his story, history, unfolding. Now, the details of verses 5 through 20 are extensive. And if I were to complicate it with all the various names, it would only clutter things more, confuse you with the dates and so forth. So that's why the handout will be provided for you. But let's take a look at it. Let's read through it and see what it says. Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her, and with him who has strength, strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. You see what I mean? You got that, right? You're clear? You can share this with your friends at dinner. It's complicated. It's so precise. It's so detailed. And yet it was all given before the fact. And it perfectly was fulfilled, which gives people a moment to pause to say this had to be written after the fact because no one could possibly know in that great detail what was going to happen next. Oh, I disagree. God does. And God showed it to his prophet Daniel. Verse 11. And the king of the south shall move with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. And when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but will not prevail. The king of the north will, be, will return and muster a great multitude uh, greater than the former and shall certainly come to the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now, though these kings are mentioned, these are not all the same people. These are also including successors to the king of the north, to the king of the south. So that's why we are now traveling through a long period of time. Some estimate that in chapter 11, we find ourselves uh, containing about 150 to 160 years. And that's the period of time that we are traveling through right now. Verse 14. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fail. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound, even describing exactly how these things will take place, and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist but he who comes against him shall do accordingly to his, in his own, to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land, this is Israel, with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face uh, to enter with strength of the whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall do, and he shall give Him, the daughter of the woman, to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be with him. And after this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but the ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fail and not be found. There there shall rise, now we're still talking about the northern kingdom, or arise in his place, one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So this last one in verse 20 Things are so mixed now between the north and the south. Many believe this individual to be Seclusius IV, the Philippator, that was his name. And it's interesting that he went in and heavily taxed Israel. Now, why were they doing this? Well, again, Israel was between the north and the south kingdoms. And so to gain wealth, to fund their conquests and their their wars, They would, of course, heavily tax the areas in between, which included Israel, and that's exactly what happened. And he didn't die of war, he was poisoned, just as the scripture said that he wouldn't die of anger or of battle. Which leads us to verse 21. The rise of one, Anachus of Fourth, Epiphanes. The glorious one, the manifested one, who in his likeness, as a type of, gives us a picture, an illustration of what can be expected in the, the rise of the Antichrist and his rule and reign over the world during the seven-year tribulation period found in Revelation 6-19. Uh, through 19. So you can go ahead and read that right now. We'll wait for you. Revelation 6 to 19, give you a better picture of what's happening here. Antiochus Epiphanes was already revealed to us in Daniel chapter eight in great length, the little horn that rose up. Now, I think it would be uh, wrong for us to move on quickly into him without first acknowledging how God used the Babylonian and the Medes and the Persian empire and the Greeks. The Babylonians were used to chasten the people of Israel, brought them into captivity. God used them as an instrument of judgment against his people to correct them so they would no longer continue in the sin of idolatry. When it came to the Medes and the Persians, they were the ones that God then used specifically by name in the book of Isaiah uh, that Cyrus would let the uh, children of Israel go back to their land after the 70 years prophesied that it would be exactly him who had done so. But then it comes to the Greeks, and people have wondered, what did the Greeks contribute? How did God use them? Or was it just simply the next empire in successions? No, the Greek empire had a significant and profound impact on the world that allowed for the furtherance of the gospel in a miraculous way. Alexander the Great was... He was brilliant to a, uh, to a degree. And he felt that what would unify the people in his empire was a common language. And so Greek was spoken then throughout the known world during the Grecian Empire. But also a commonality of knowledge. It was important for Alexander the Great that people have access to what he called the common knowledge or the commonality of knowledge, meaning that he wanted people educated. And of course, that was on the backs of the Greek philosophers that impacted the world during that time, etc. Now, how does that affect the gospel? The Greek language allowed the gospel to go throughout the known world without the hindrance of trying to overcome various language from nation to nation to nation. Paul didn't have to translate his writings, his letters, into various different languages for them to be accepted and appreciated by the people in whom he was sending them to. He wrote them in Greek, which was a common language still, even under the Roman reign. The issue of common knowledge allowed for Christianity to be be recorded in their history as a process of Judaism, meaning it, it proceeded from Judaism, and as a result, many people then have the, uh, the knowledge, oh, Christianity is in other parts of the known world, and now when it comes to our, our area of the world, we see that it's already something that has occurred. It's fascinating when you look at history to see how God used these people for his glory. Now, when the Romans came in, well, what did they contribute? And it wasn't, you know, pizza and spaghetti. It was the roads. As Rome built roads throughout the known world, it allowed for easy travel between the various nations of the world. How many miles of those roads did Paul walk throughout the known world, bringing the gospel into the entire world? I think that in every worldwide crisis or worldwide event, always take a moment to look to see, God, how are you going to use this for your glory? I think God has used it the last two years in many significant ways. I think now, more than ever, we have discovered that the institutions of our world aren't nearly worth the trust and faith that we have placed in them. Now, don't get me wrong. I love our nation and I love the Constitution of the United States of America. But there's a problem, isn't there, today? The Constitution of the United States worked very well when the heart of the individual was governed by God. But now that's not the case any longer, is it? And so things, you know, are being challenged and changed. Were you thankful when the Supreme Court voted in our favor? because the Constitution prohibited some of the dealings that the politicians wanted to put forth, some of the, they, they call them mandates, I call them edicts, put forth. A judge in southern Illinois now said that the mandates adopted here in Illinois were illegally done. I'm grateful for the foundation that we have. But we need to preserve that foundation to preserve our society going forward. But there's another thing that occurred. In the loss of that hope of our institutionals, uh, institutional, uh, institutions saving us, people now are beginning to ask questions like never before about God. Being a pastor, I can't go anywhere without somebody asking me about God. You don't know how difficult that is. <laughs> but once they find out that I'm a pastor, immediately they want to talk about God. I love talking about God. I'll keep them there for two hours. I don't care if we're in a toll booth or not. We're going to stay there and talk about the Lord. People are asking questions like never before because those things that were foundational to them have been challenged in in their validity and strength. And insecurity has gripped the hearts of many in our culture and fear has overwhelmed them. there's something else that happened too and this week the last two weeks we've seen it you know we often laugh at the idea that god can use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise did you ever think that it would be 10,000 truckers in canada that would get people's attention i've been trying to find a parking space in ottawa for the last two weeks you can't find one anywhere One of the biggest mainstream media gaffes happened this week. I don't know if you saw it. This was great. They were talking about how violent this protest is in Ottawa. And so, after talking about how violent it was, they panned to the streets and there were little kids holding up signs (laughs) and dancing to fun music. I was terrified. I ain't going to Canada. How many of you heard of Joe Rogan before this week? Yeah, there are some of you. Look at that. Let me just give you an idea of his impact and influence around the world and why, uh, and why he is now being censored by Spotify in the way he is. Right now, CNN, their most popular show, has about 500,000 viewers per day. Fox News, the most popular show on Fox News is Tucker Carlson. He has about 3.5 million, as high as 4 million per day. So 500,000, 4 million. They now have quantified that Joe Rogan's podcast has the average listenership of 11 million people per day. And now that the mainstream media can no longer control the narrative, we see this breakthrough. And this is what the freedom of speech looks like. And we need to preserve it. My dad once told me, he goes, you are going to have to defend a lot of dumb people over your life. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you're going to meet a lot of very dumb people, but they have the right to free speech just as much as you do. Now, that was his perspective. And I agree. I believe we should have free speech. We should have open conversation. You know, the only reason for cancel culture is because they don't have a good argument to put forward. I'm not intimidated by the cancel culture because it only proves that we're right. One person said this. I thought it was brilliant. You know how you identify the truth? See who they're trying to cancel this week. Very interesting. God's always working, guys. That's my point. Sometimes we have to look hard for it. Sometimes we have to pray and wait on him to, re- to show us and to reveal us. But one of the things that cannot happen is if once we end this pandemic, and I believe we're ending it now as we are looking at it going into an endemic state, we as Christians cannot go back to the old normal of complacency, apathy, and carnality. We can't. We have to keep moving forward. Keep pushing forward. Because I have children, a child, excuse me. She hopes to have children one day. And I want them to enjoy the country that I've known. Are we perfect? No. Do we need to correct things? Sure. But the lack of perfection in our country is due to the fact that man is imperfect. The depravity of man's heart is found all throughout chapter 11 of Daniel. The depravity of man's heart has certainly been seen now in our society. It's that heart that must be dealt with before true justice can be discovered. But getting back to our text this morning, we now find ourselves, and we're only going to be reading a few more verses today, as we arrive at the one that we know to be Anicus Epiphanes, verse 21. And in his place shall rise a vile or despicable person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty but he shall come, to peaceably and, come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Anicus Epiphany was not the rightful heir to the throne. He stole it from his brother's son. Again, this is prophesied before the fact. He deceived them. He flattered them. He came in in a very peaceable manner and he just Moved them out of the way to allow him to assume the throne. Very interesting. Verse 22: With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Atticus Epiphanes, as he traveled through Israel, came against Israel many times, and Oneas, the third, the high priest at that time, was killed, and that's what this is referring to here in verse 22 and after the league is made with him he shall act deceitfully for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the providence he shall do what uh, what his fathers have not done nor his forefathers He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, and the riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. What Anarchus Epiphanes did, which was really interesting, is he shared the wealth with others to create a deeper uh, allegiance with those who served under him. From each and every kingdom in which he conquered, he took the spoils and he split them with others. And they appreciated it, appreciated him and followed him uh, continually due to that fact. Verse 25. He shall stir up his power and uh, courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise a plan against him. So the king of the south, his own army, turns against him, and therefore Anarchus Epiphanes from the north is victorious. In verse 26, yes, those who eat of the portions of his delicacy shall destroy him. His armies shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, that is Anachis Epiphanes and the king in the in the south. And they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper. For the end Will still be at an appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. So, as each time he went through Israel to war against the kingdom of the south there in Egypt, Israel would be decimated a little bit more each and every time along the way. To the point of verse 29. And at the appointed time, have you noticed how many times that has come up already? See, God has everything in control. There's an appointed time for everything under heaven. And we see that continuously used in prophetic passages, an appointed time, an appointed time. It means that God from the foundations of the world knew exactly how everything was going to play out and nothing that man did would ever hinder that plan and purpose. Now, in verse 29, as he goes down again towards the south, but it shall not be like the former. He's not going to be successful this time, Anarchus Epiphanes. Why? Verse 30. For the ships from Cyprus. These are the Romans. The Romans have had enough of this now. They were also getting ready to begin their invasion of the entire world. And they stop him. Notice they send him packing. But because they do, he's even more angry than he was before. Therefore, Uh, He shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant. Now, this is the time that Israel is really going to get uh, his fury as he travels back to the north in defeat. So he shall return and show show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. There will be those Jewish people that align with him that he will reward for doing so. Now, think long term, guys. Think of the last days, and we'll talk about this in a minute. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place their abomination of desolation. Verse 31. We know that Atticus Epiphanes, in returning to the northern kingdom at this time, went in and ransacked Jerusalem. He stopped the worship of their God, the reading of the law was forbidden. He wanted to uh, de-Judaize the entire region, wanted them all to become Greeks. And to absolutely abolish their worship, he went in and raised a statue of Zeus there in the Holy of Holies. And then he slaughtered a pig on the altar, defiling it, and in hopes of bringing Israel to their knees. But that didn't happen. Because there was a priest in Israel who's had enough. And his sons had enough. And they're known as the Maccabeans. And they rose up against him. And they defeated him. What he believed would bring Israel to their knees actually caused Israel to stand up. And the Maccabeans took them out, cleansed the temple in 167 B.C., and restored the reading of the word of God. Restored the kingdom back to its king. Jesus celebrated this in John 10 in an event called Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Notice with me, though, in verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant shall corrupt with, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits, the Maccabeans. And those of the people whom understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword. This isn't going to be easy. And by flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. This is the rise of the Maccabeans. But many shall join with them by intrigue and some of those understandings shall fall to refine them purify them and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time prophecy is so specific so accurate that we can always count on it and trust it but Jesus told us something that should trouble us. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew 24, verse 15. It should be on the screen behind you. Behind me, I should say. Don't look that way. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. What? This happened over hundred, almost 200 years earlier. Anarchus Epiphanes came in and he rose the statue to Zeus and he defiled the altar with a pig. But Jesus said there is another coming. There's another one coming who will defile the holy of holies. There's another one coming who's going to be in the embodiment of evil perfectly as he's indwelt by Satan himself. We see this in Thessalonians chapter 2. We see this in Revelation 13 as the Antichrist, like uh, Anicus Epiphanes, repeats the same thing in the resurrected temple in the last days. For the Antichrist himself will go in, raise a statue of himself, and demand all to worship him. Just as Anicus Epiphanes, the enlightened one, the glorious one, the dead one now, And yet God still reigns supreme. You know, in the days of the Christians, the most formidable enemy to them was Caesar himself, Nero, right? But today Caesar is merely a salad dressing, isn't it? (laughs) It had to take a while to sink in. It's like, holy cow, we talked about all this history. Now you're talking about salad dressing. Only here at Calvary can we do that. Don't get so caught up in who's in the White House, right? Don't get so caught up in these things because they're here one day and gone the next. And yet the kingdom of God still stands day in and day out. All right, I want to take two more minutes of your time, if I may. I know we've gone a little bit long, but I think I earned a little grace just reading through that thing out loud, okay? Thank you, Jay. You are going to heaven. I'm just going to confirm that. Peter wrote something. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in dark places. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy is given to us to confirm the validity of the inspired word of God. There is no greater prophecy in the Bible than the prophecies concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 333 in the Old Testament, over 600 concerning his second coming in the New, in Old and New Testament combined. When you have a number like that, sometimes the possibility and probability of their fulfillment becomes difficult to really appreciate. So let me help quantify that for you this morning, if I may. A professor once asked mathematical students in California, in the University in California, To take eight prophecies of Jesus Christ and try to quantify the possibility of one who is merely 30 to 33 years of age, over a three-year period of time, in the number of people that existed in the entire world's population at that time, what was the probability of him fulfilling just eight prophecies of the Bible? Now, he fulfilled 333. We're going to take eight because that's the most manageable size to do so. They came to the conclusion through mathematical calculation that the chances of Jesus Christ simply fulfilling one, I'm sorry, eight prophecies in a three year period of uh, time with the total population of the world at that time was one to the 1000th and 17th power. That's a lot, or uh, that's a lot of zeros afterwards. It, actually, I, I said that wrong. It's it's one and then the ten with seventeen zeros after it. That's the chance. Well, let me help you illustrate that for you more. If I were to take a silver dollar and paint it red. I would have to throw it in a sea of silver dollars two feet deep over the entire state of Texas. So think of the entire state of Texas covered two feet deep with silver dollars. You might be like, hey, I won the jackpot. Throwing this one red one in the midst of them and having one chance to pull out from the midst of them that one red painted silver dollar that is the same mathematical chance as one to the 17th power of jesus fulfilling eight of those prophecies possible yes but the probability absolutely diminishes when you look at the grand scheme of those 333 prophecies which he fulfilled perfectly The only way that could possibly be is if he was exactly who he said he was. That's how specific the word of God is. And though the events of Revelation have still not yet taken place, based upon this understanding of history, I can say with full confidence that it sure will in the future. Because that's how precise God is about his prophecy.